Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. It's the season finale of Big Little Lies on Sunday, so make sure to check out our final episode of our live after show with the Ringer's Amanda Dobbins and ESPN's Mina Kimes. You can tune in on Twitter to Big Little Live right after the episode ends. Also, this week's 2019 Open Championship marks the final major championship of the golf season. So check out Fairway Roland, where Joe House is joined by a cast of Ringer and Golf World personalities for everything you need to know heading into the weekend. You can find new episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of The Watch really packed show today. So I have Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg News join me and had a really interesting conversation about Netflix, Netflix loss of subscribers in Q2, what it means for them going forward, where Netflix is positioned next to all these other streaming services as they arrive in the fall and next year, Disney, Apple, Comcast, AT&T, HBO Max, whatever, Hulu, which will be part of Disney. It's going to be a really weird time because I think a lot of changes are going to happen to people's watching behaviors, their wallets, what they're spending their money on, where they look for stuff. Uh, I was also joined later in the show by Riley McAtee, who came to talk to me about the changes in Survivor. But first, I wanted to talk to literally anyone who would talk to me about this. I wanted to talk about the Top Gun trailer. Top Gun colon Maverick. Trailer dropped today, Thursday. A truly like amazing moment. It's been a while since there's been a near riot in our Slack and in our office over a movie trailer. It happened 20 minutes after Top Gun with cats, but for all the wrong reasons. But I don't think I've seen anything unite us as a staff like I did Top Gun. And not even men, women, old, young. And speaking of old, young, I'm joined by Bobby Wagner. Hello, Chris. So Bobby, you he produces the big picture. You can hear him on the MLB show. Bobby is one of our podcast producers, like producer Kaya. Kaya, say hi. Hello. And Kaya is not joining me in this segment because Kaya <laughs> saw the Top Gun trailer and shrugged and said, it seems like a guy movie. I'm she, really happy for you guys. It doesn't. She doesn't understand that it's a religious experience. That's what I like to call the Amanda Dobbins stance. <laughs> I'm happy you guys have things you enjoy. Bobby, this is like Field of Dreams where I'm your ghost dad. And you're like, you want to have a catch? And instead of a baseball, we're throwing an F-16 at each other. (laughs) This is the most important thing that's happened to me in many years. Explain to me your relationship as a younger man with with Top Gun. I think Top Gun is the first adult movie that I saw that was like campy. Uh Uh-huh. I have a deep relationship with it because I watched it a lot of times with my sister growing up Uh because we enjoy the Kenny Loggins soundtrack quite a bit. And also frequently strive to be the type of person to play volleyball on the beach in jeans with yeah. no shirt on. Yeah, I came into watching Top Gun thinking that I was going to be watching a serious movie the first time I saw it. Okay. And I think the people who made it probably thought that they were making a serious movie at the time and it sort of evolved. Yeah, I don't think they think it's unserious. It's just that what, what it, like all the gestures, which are so perfectly fixed to the time when it came out, have become kind of ironic over the years, right? Yes, right. exactly. I love everything about Top Gun. I love the masculinity. I love the uh, latent homoeroticism mm-hmm. of it all. Um, and I just kind of like when people are in jets. Tom Cruise in tight spaces is very important to me. Yeah, Tom Cruise pulling five Gs and giving the middle finger to a MIG over the Indian Ocean <laughs> is like a fucking really important thing to happen in this in, in our culture. <laughs> I think maybe Donnie Kwok had the best comment in our Slack about it where he said that Top Gun taught me how to give the middle finger to people. <laughs> it really did. It taught me how to give thumbs up and Middle Finger. Yeah. It, was a, it was a great movie for hand gestures. So this movie, it obviously heavily, heavily features Tom Cruise in the trailer to the incredible expense of every single other person in this movie, including Jennifer Conley, Miles Teller, Glenn Powell, Ed Harris, John Hamm, and countless others I'm sure I'm not thinking of right now. But you would not know that anyone else is in this movie because it's just like Tom fucking Cruise. Colin Maverick. And Top Gun, Colin Maverick. Now, Andy and I laughed a lot when it seemed like Tom Cruise was going to gently hand off the football to Jeremy Renner and let him take over Mission Impossible. <laughs> and then he was like, nah, not today, That's dog. like one of your longest-running yeah. storylines. I don't know if there was ever any conversation about truly bequeathing the Top Gun franchise, which is not, in essence, like a franchise, really, to Miles Teller. This is the only franchise I support, by the way. But uh, I don't care. 
It it is so exciting to see this. It looks like it's literally a shot for shot remake of Top Gun. It does look like that. I was curious. I was going to ask you about that, whether that would bother you or not. No, it's not Full Metal Jacket, dude. It's okay. <laughs> it's like it's not. We're not. We're not talking about like you know John John Luke Godard movies. We're talking yeah, about not Top doing great Gun. American classics. If we're here, gonna although... make Top Gun again, I don't want it to be about like drone pilots. You know, yeah. I don't want to have to confront that part of the geopolitical no. military industrial complex. I want it to be dudes breaking the sound barrier in over white sands. You don't want to be accused of knowing nothing about Pakistan. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I don't want to get into a Zero Dark Thirty debate. I just want it to be beautiful to look at, insanely loud, dudes with mustaches and aviator glasses. Yes. And beach sports. I completely agree with you. And I think one of the things that I— uh, maybe I'm jealous most of is that I never got to see Top Gun in theaters. Yeah. And so now the opportunity to really make an event out of this for me is something that I, I can't even express how excited I'm, I'm, I am about this. Like, this actually is my Super Bowl. That's maybe the most overused phrase at the ringer. This is my Super Bowl. I think it's definitely like the movie of next year for us. Yeah. I just, I just, I, I'm sure I will be, somebody's going to be like, by the way, there's a Paul Thomas Anderson movie coming out yeah. in May or something. But like, I just, like, when I saw this, I was like, I wish this was out tomorrow. I would probably spend a like five hundred dollars to see it. It's tomorrow. the only time I've ever related to you guys talking about Triple Frontier. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kaya, hearing me and Bobby talk about this, are you are you there opening night? Uh, not opening night, but you know, I'm, I I'll go see it. <laughs> Everybody is so muscular. What what is there to not love? Yeah, I mean, like, why wouldn't you want to see Glenn Powell just dappled in oils? <laughs> Getting ready Everybody to run. Everybody is so damn oily. Getting ready to run Cliff Kingsbury's offense on the beach. Let me see the first Top Gun, and then I'll get back to you guys. Okay, that's great. Well, we can we can continue to have a series of Top Gun conversations over the course of the next twelve months. Sounds great. Okay, the rewatchable <laughs> Top Gun. Top Gun has made me realize how much of a hypocrite I am because I think I criticize Game of Thrones a lot for kind of going back to the hits. And then I saw Tom Cruise pull the hood off of a motorcycle that he was going to ride down in the in the air hangar, the airplane hangar. And it's I was the like, same music. Please inject there are this shots, into like, me. There's a shot of Miles Teller playing piano, which is just Anthony Edwards playing piano from, from 20 years ago. RIP. Or whatever. You know, it's just unbelievable stuff. Most crushing movie death for me other than Lion King. All right. That was Top Gun. Uh, Kai and I are going to talk a little bit about Emmys. And then we're going to talk to Lucas Shaw about Netflix. All right, thank you, Kaya, for enduring me and Bobby's BroFest. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Emmys. All right. Okay, so I'll probably call Greenwald on Monday and get his takeaways because I'm sure he's seeing something here that I'm not. I don't necessarily want to debate what didn't didn't get nominated as much as sort of take a step back and talk about the Emmys in general, mm-hmm. which is essentially that while I don't have any real huge arguments with a lot of the stuff that got nominated, for instance, drama series, here's the nominees. Better Call Saul, love that show. Bodyguard, really enjoyed that show. Game of Thrones, Legacy, it's going to be the farewell, okay? Killing Eve, I didn't like it as much as the first season, but fine. Ozark, I didn't like it as much as the first season, but I still liked it a lot. Post-Succession, obviously Succession was my favorite show of 2018, and This Is Us. So that's a fine group of shows. It's a lot. I don't think that there's like, it's, it doesn't feel competitive when it's that many shows. It's like, if, that, if it's that many, why not 10? But I think that as television, and what we define as television at least, plays a bigger and bigger part in what we watch. I would love to find out whether it's like having it Emmy the Emmys twice a year or just figuring it out where it just feels like it's more of the time that it's trying to memorialize. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, it just feels extremely disjointed, basically. Especially, I think, now because it's split across something like HBO and NBC, which is like very structured and traditional style of television, sure. and like as far as release schedules go. And then you have like Bodyguard and Ozark, which feel like they premiered two years ago at this point. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like you have like this real dissonance about when you're sort of judging things. I think for the Oscars, what happens is. Yes, it's about the year, but the Oscar movies, for the most part, are condensed into that crazy four-month run. Right. Or maybe late September in the case of, like, a a Martian kind of thing, or, like, you know, uh, Stars Born last year. But for the most part, you have this, like, really condensed, incredibly intense period where all these movies are coming out, all these people, everybody has their takes on them, and all the conversation is happening at the same time. And then we turn our eyes towards 
awards jockeying and you have a couple of awards shows that kind of lead up to the Oscars and it culminates through that. Now, maybe by the time you get to the Oscars, you have fatigue about awards and you would just like to have stuff come out and whatever. That's fine. But with the Emmys, I just don't know what we're... I think we're just kind of still in this nether region where it's like, well, what is the actual time period it's assessing? And whether or not there's just way too much category gerrymandering, essentially. So explain that to me. What do you, because that's something I'm confused about with the Emmys and I've been hearing a lot about this week is this idea of like category fraud and category gerrymandering and like you even get something like Gwendolyn Christie who gets to nominate herself for an Emmy and it's like, how does that work? Yeah, and I think, well, uh, the shows put themselves forward for Emmys and then and they decide what episodes are going to be put forward for nominations. I, I believe that actors and, and can say, like, I am going to put myself up for supporting actor. I'm not really sure about how the acting process works. I do know for the writing, you know, David Benioff and Dan Weiss put forward the finale of Game of Thrones for their, for their you know, Emmy consideration for writing. When it comes to the the category gerrymandering I'm talking about, like I'm not under I don't really know if I understand how succession is a drama, but Mrs. Maisel is a comedy, right? Right. I don't know necessarily how Fleabag is a comedy, but Killing Eve is a drama. I understand that they Fleabag plays a little bit more for laugh lines, but it, it does seem like those shows that go into certain categories don't always make a ton of sense. Uh, in the past, there's been a lot of controversy about limited series. So mm-hmm. this year, yeah. I actually do think that these series are li- limited. We will not be getting more seasons of Chernobyl, Danamora, Fosse Verdon, Sharp Objects, or When They See Us. Those are limited. But then you get into what's a TV movie. You know, Black Mirror Bandersnatch is an extension of Black Mirror. It's great that it got nominated. I really enjoyed Black Mirror Bandersnatch. But wouldn't that necessarily be part of the Black Mirror series, right? Right, right. You get into the same thing with somewhat with Deadwood. You know, Deadwood is like, Mm -hmm. it was a television movie specifically. It it really was, but it was also an extension of Deadwood, which was a long-running series. So there's a little bit of confusion there. I think a lot of it also is just like the sheer amount of people who are nominated. So in lead actress, it's Amelia Clark, Jodie Comer, Viola Davis, Laura Linney, Mandy Moore, Sandra Oh, and Robin Wright. That's a that's a huge field to be choosing from. And I don't know necessarily that you're gonna like find that it rewards someone overwhelmingly for their performance over the course of the year. Yeah, I mean, it just gets into, like, it's just so starkly different from the way that, like, the Oscars operates and, like, it just feels like they should not be compared to each other. Like, someone like Robin Wright should not be in the same category as, like, Jodie Comer. Sure, yeah. I mean, like, it, you get into sort of, like, well, what are we really evaluating here anyway? Because right. performance and people's reactions to performance are so varied. In the movies, I think what you tend to see with the Oscars is it rewards something that puts actors through a defined physical obstacle, you know, whether or not it's like losing a lot of weight or pretending, you know, like, but I I think that that they're often very showy performances in the Oscars that are obvious leading candidates for an award. Another uh, example, just really quickly of like category gerrymandering is Mahershala Ali, who is amazing and true detective is nominated for lead actor in a limited series or movie. It's true detective season three. I don't understand how (laughs) that could in any way be considered a limited series except for the fact that it doesn't have a regular release schedule the way Grey's Anatomy does. Right, and that it's like an anthology and that each uh, season is different from the previous. Yeah, so it'll be a really interesting thing to see as we, you know, and I talked to Lucas Shaw about this in a few minutes, as these streaming services essentially replace the way we understand traditional television watching, and as they operate under their own schedules that have to do with their own financial forecasts and their own quarters and their own fiscal years, how on earth do you make that uh, ascribe to any kind of Emmy consideration? How does that fall into any kind of calendar that the Emmys are looking at? And should you just basically say, look, January 20th, 2019, or 2020 to January 20th, 2021, that's the Emmy year. And then the Emmys themselves and the voting gets pushed up a little bit. I don't know how they'll react. One thing that you know is just that you see a lot lot of sameness here, a lot of Game of Thrones, a lot of... A lot of Ozark, a lot of uh, Better Call Saul, although not for Racy Horn, which really sucks. 
you're not really getting the widest swath of stuff here, considering how much TV is being made. Yeah, and that's a good point, considering like how much content has been pumped out this year. It's really just like, I want to say like 10 main shows before you start getting into like the reality stuff like that and the like the comedy stuff. It's yeah. really just pulling from the 10, same 10 group of things. Yeah, it's like the entire cast of, of Game of Thrones is essentially in here. The entire cast of, of Fleabag, for instance, is essentially in there. So uh, it'll be fascinating to see how this plays out. I have my interview with Lucas Shaw coming up. Lucas Shaw is a writer for Bloomberg News. And he writes really well and really informative stuff about Netflix and just the streaming wars in general. So we'll get into our interview with Lucas Shaw. And then after Lucas, I'm joined by Riley McAtee to talk about Survivor. Thanks for listening to The Watch. All right, now I'm joined by Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg News. Lucas, I'm really glad you came by. I have to admit, I've been reading you for a while, and I'm a little nervous because— I like. I feel like we try to adopt a position of of knowledge about the streaming wars here on the watch, and yet you're probably way more informed than I am about what's going on. And you were sort of on the front lines of reporting about Netflix's subscriber loss, which was revealed yesterday. For people who are sort of wondering what that means, can you just give me like the broadest of broadest like outlooks on that? Sure. So if you step back a second, you know, most people who use Netflix know it's really popular service. And over the past eight to 10 years, it has ridden a wave on the stock market and more broadly just in consumer attention like we have not seen before. It went from being a three or $4 billion company to a $150 billion company, all because it kept adding customers at a really rapid rate every single quarter. Every year for the past eight years, pretty much for the ever since it had streaming, it set a new record with the number of customers it added. And the only way that that narrative takes a hit is if it has a blip mm-hmm. and, or if it shrinks. And that's what it did in this most recent quarter, where not only did it shrink in terms of the number of customers that it added in the U.S., but the number of customers that it added outside of the U.S. was significantly smaller than it said. So every oh, okay. time a public company is going to release their earnings, they tend to issue a forecast of what they're going to do in that quarter. And so Netflix had issued a forecast for the second quarter that wasn't great. And then it went way under that to a degree that it had never missed before. If it if it misses its forecast a lot, it's usually because it goes way over it. And so this the reaction was immediate. Its stock plunged like 11% in five minutes. And it lost, if you want to think about it, so it lost like $20, $22 billion in market value. So yeah. it lost like a CBS, CBS Corporation, <laughs> the whole company, CBS, Showtime, Simon Schuster Book Publishing. That company's worth like $19 billion. Netflix lost that overnight. Okay, so is it actually that bad, or is that just more of a perception thing? It remains to be seen. So the if it is a sign that growth is going to slow long-term, it's really, really bad mm-hmm. because Netflix has been able to borrow money, been able to fund all these programs, expand like crazy, become perhaps the biggest producer of TV and movies in the world. Because it keeps growing and because of confidence in the company, it has run at a loss, or it technically reports a profit, but it spends more money than it actually takes in. And it gets to keep doing that because people believe in it and it keeps growing. And as long as that story holds, there are no problems. Once there's a problem in that story, they have to scale back. And there's a lot more questions, and that causes all sorts of headaches that we don't know because we haven't seen it in this era of Netflix. There's also a possibility that it is just a blip. For whatever reason, the second quarter has been a really balky one for Netflix. It had a really bad second quarter three years ago that, if memory serves, it blamed on the transition to chip-based credit cards. The executives yesterday basically said that that explanation was BS and that they they still don't know what happened three years ago. And they have had off quarters before. And that's my understanding what the CEO, Reed Hastings, what the chief content officer, Ted Sarandos, they have told employees, don't worry yet. If we have a couple of these quarters in a row, then you should worry. For now, we missed one. And they issued a very optimistic forecast for the third quarter of $7 million. Which is the Stranger Things quarter. So you pointed in your piece for Bloomberg, you pointed at basically two big reasons why these numbers might have dropped off. One was the raise the the raise prices for subscription for membership essentially and also a weaker slate of programming is there an actual correlation between the popularity of the programming on Netflix on any given quarter and their subscriptions going up and down i don't know because they release such a volume that it's hard to know with anything. You know, they if you look back at what they put out in the most recent quarter, I guess they didn't they certainly didn't have a hit as big as Stranger Things because there are only one or two shows on Netflix that are that popular. Sure. Uh, but 
they release 100 plus programs. They, you know, they had the Ava DuVernay uh, miniseries when they see us. They had that that Jennifer Aniston, Adam Sandler movie, Murder Mystery, that they say was a huge hit. They had a bunch of programs that a lot of people watched. That wasn't enough. So I, I guess if you if you take them at their word, then yes, it depends on that. The one or two show, one or two big shows can make all the difference. Yeah, because I was thinking about this. Sometimes I don't know in what terms to think of Netflix. Like, am I supposed to think about it in the way that I've traditionally thought about HBO, which is that if HBO has a show like Game of Thrones, people will probably go evangelize for that show and someone will say, well... I don't want to be left out, so I guess I should spend the X amount of dollars per month and add that onto my cable bill or get HBO uh, now and so that I can be part of the Game of Thrones thing where I've become a fan of Game of Thrones and now I can't live without it. Is there stuff on game on Netflix that people can't live without or is it simply the totality of the service that they can't live without? And if that's the case, what do they have to do to sustain that in the face of this increased and coming competition, right, from all these other streaming services. And I think you've actually there identified a really fundamental tension within Netflix right now because for its history, it has wanted to be a service where the totality of it is what matters. Yeah. You signed up because Netflix replaces TV, right? You can go there for stand-up. You can go there for documentaries, comedy, drama, movies, whatever you want to watch, they will have. But they're now entering a world where they're working with some of the biggest creators in TV, some of whom work in the building that you guys yeah. work out of, those people expect to be treated special. They want their shows to be events. And Netflix is going to have to make some of those individual shows feel like events, both to satisfy the needs of the talent and because it will help draw in new customers. It's what they did with this season of Stranger Things, mm -hmm. but that was an anomaly for them. They don't normally do that. Yeah, because, you know, it, it, it does feel like when you and you're talking about Shonda Rhimes, you're talking about Ryan Murphy— the way that I see Netflix every day when I turn it on, it hasn't changed in a while. And it's very, very, uh, it, it's pretty much like a, it's it's very democratic. You know what I mean? Like you just look and like the Aziz slide is as big as the true crime doc slide. And sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not based on my algorithm. And it does feel a lot like flipping through the channel guide on your cable box because you just never know what you might find. And to be, I, I'm a big fan of a bunch of shows on that, on the, on the service. But more often than not, just because of the volume, I think I probably have the reaction that you and I would if we were just like looking through our cable guide right now and it was like a Housewives rerun, a House Hunters, a Sports Center, a movie I've seen before but may watch again. It's like if there's nothing else on. Eh. It's like a lot of eh. And then what we but I think what we've trained ourselves for as so much talent has migrated towards what we like loosely define as television is like events. And, like, you can't miss this. And Reese Witherspoon is on this. Or David Fincher's directing this or something. And we feel like we have to be there for it. But then I'm not sure if that actually jibes with what Netflix is, is interested in. Sometimes I think I have this big complex where I'm like, why won't Netflix let me love it? Like, if they just put Stranger Things out two at a time, it would be so fun to, like, cover it over the course of a summer rather than we have three days to get this done. Yeah. I would expect a redesign of Netflix may, or maybe small alterations mm. in the next year or two. I've had conversations with people at the company who've talked about trying to better tailor the the service to kind of your time of day or your mood or what that circumstance is you're viewing. And oh, I, interesting. And I do think that with some of the talent they're working with, like there were a lot of rumors that they would say create a special shelf, like one of those the series of tiles the on Netflix. Yeah for a Shonda or a Ryan Murphy. Now, they can't do it right away unless they have a huge volume of programming. They may have adopted a different strategy, but they're aware that they need to kind of play with it. They're also in the UK. They're doing this. They're starting to issue weekly top 10 lists, so the 10 most watched shows. Okay. And on their call with analysts yesterday, they some of their executives talked about maybe trying to kind of position popularity within the service. So for the people who want to watch what they know other people are watching, they can find that. Mm -hmm. I, what that looks like, we don't know. But I think they do have to fool around and and make it more appealing so that people aren't overwhelmed by the volume and don't just see lots of crap. Yeah, so that's the question I was kind of wondering. Do they... Traditionally, what would happen is a show is going to come out on HBO or FX or Showtime in about two months we all know about it. They're sending out screeners. The shows are going to come out once a week. We can either, if we're enthusiastic about the show, we'll tend to like talk a lot about it and drum up enthusiasm. And then we go along this process and watch it episode by episode with people. And that's how conversation starts. That's how you draw attention. But for them, are they actually 
is there any care about that conversation or do they think the conversation has to happen on their own terms is what do, do you see yeah what I'm saying? i think they have historically not cared about that conversation. they care about emmys they care about emmys yeah. a whole lot they yeah. spend a lot of money trying to win awards they're uh, it depends on the executive some of the top people there are aware of what hollywood people talk about and how important that is but historically that has not been core to the netflix dna they just want to cr- create a fly trap that you come into and you get stuck there and that's why one of the reasons i don't think that they care about that you know there would be some shows where it would make sense to release on a weekly basis. Sure. They'd probably get more attention for them. If they had taken that when they see us and instead of dropping all four episodes at once meant that in May, every Sunday night you right. had a different episode or Saturday or you pick a night, I bet that show would have gotten even more attention and those viewership numbers that they released about that first month would be even higher. Yeah, because it's a pure viewing experience. You're taking out the idea of anticipation and reaction if you if you put it up as a binge. And I think that it seems like the that the idea of putting things up in one dose and the lack of ads are their two core tenets that they're never going to deviate from. Would you would you say that that seems to be those are pretty like closely held? I think the ads more than than all at once because they mm. have fooled around with certain shows, especially for kids. They've started to take a property and then, yeah, maybe they'll have a f- the first season will be released all at once, but they'll have individual episodes released between seasons because they know that especially with kids, they need to keep them coming back for that thing because they want to rewatch it over and over. There are only 10 episodes. You know, kids can rewatch episodes a lot, but mm-hmm. at a certain point, they're going to get tired and bored. So I've talked to producers who say that Netflix has has played around a little bit with that release strategy. I would be surprised with one of their big tentpole shows. But you never know. You know, they they might at some point see, oh, hey, Game of Thrones, when they released an episode every every week, not only was it the most talked about thing on the internet for six weeks, but there are whole podcasts devoted to it. There's recaps every week. There is a benefit to that strategy. Do you think that—so let's let's cast forward a little bit. I would imagine that their next quarter will be a slightly rosier outlook because of Stranger Things, because Orange is coming back, because—I mean, they have, like, a pretty strong second half of the year, right? Between those two, although I question how popular Orange is anymore. At this point, yeah. The, that show, Casa de Papel, the Spanish show that mm-hmm. was Money Heist, pretty popular. They have some big, big movies. They have the Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. They have a Michael Bay movie, which might not be good, yeah. but it's going to be expensive. So they should have enough to bring people in. But again, it comes back to forecast. They said $7 million. That's a big number. That would be like their biggest third quarter ever, I, I think. Yeah. So... They could have a really good quarter, but add five and a half and Wall Street freaks out. And then that comes out. They will report right before or right around when the new Apple service comes, when the new Disney service comes. Mm -hmm. And even if those other streaming services aren't eating into the Netflix customer base yet, there is a narrative that has taken hold that they're going to have to contend with for many years to come. Do you think that uh, we're beaten up on Netflix a little bit because that's what we have to beat up on? But when these other streaming services are released, we'll have like a little bit We'll have somebody else to pay attention to to some extent. Yeah, I also think Netflix has been totally immune from the tech clash that's happened, right? Where Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, we're worried about these big tech companies that control our lives. Netflix hasn't gotten it because unlike YouTube, it doesn't have user-generated programming. It's not as big as Apple or Amazon. It doesn't seem as imposing. You know, Disney really has more power than Netflix still. But I have detected throughout the year, a growing resentment, a combination of some of the Hollywood people who didn't like Netflix in the first place with users who are frustrated by certain things. You know, you can't love something forever, especially not a product that you're using every day. There's going to come a point where you don't like it. When you say the Hollywood people, what are are some of the resentments that you hear? Oh, uh, agents hate Netflix because it doesn't release ratings, because Netflix buys out all of uh, their clients' profit participation up front. Right. So there's not the same back-end, or what's called back-end, there's not the same earnings potential. And agents don't like that because it caps their earnings potential. Uh, Most people find Netflix really arrogant to deal with. It's this culture of honesty and transparency, but that really only applies internally. They are not transparent with other people. Okay. You know, you meet anybody who works in Hollywood. There's certain creative people who have really nice things to say about Netflix, but for the most part, people like to complain. Do you think that some of, is there something about the way that they make TV? You know, there's there's a bunch of shows on there that I think are truly excellent, but I th- one of the complaints that you hear sometimes, whether it's a movie that they've bought and put up, like um, the Cloverfield movie, or even something that I really like, like Triple Frontier, where people are kind of like, did anyone give notes on this? Did this go through a sort of rigorous kind of vet, quality vetting process? Because it feels a little bit like 
you guys go make your movie and then we'll put it up and there's no actual like development process or is there a really robust development process and they just haven't quite found their stride yet? Well, it's volume. I mean, think about how much they're making. I think they're for a certain number of really popular shows or ones that they've been working on for a while, they'll give notes and be more involved and maybe give too much. But for the most part, either because they're stretched too thin or because it's simply the show's too low on their priority list. Yeah, they're not doing a whole lot. It seems like they're almost like there's like an inversion. I was talking about this with with, uh, Bill and Amanda on Bill's pod when when this first happened yesterday. And it does seem like, for, for me at least, I get way more excited about Netflix shows that are debuting than Netflix shows that are on their third season. And I, 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 I feel like an example, what would be a good example? Not, not Narcos, because I actually just really like Narcos. Uh, Bloodline was a good one. Bill was talking about that. As Bloodline kind of like went on, you were kind of like, I, I'm finding it harder and harder to get like ginned up to, see, to watch this. And even outside of the Kevin Spacey stuff, Cards was like that a little bit, where I think it was a little bit hard to sort of sustain my interest in them, whereas... I always get kind of jazzed up when I find something on Netflix or when something finally drops on Netflix. I'll be really curious to see how Mindhunter does because technically Mindhunter should be what Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul has been for AMC in terms of people discovering it over time because it didn't flatten out everything and you, you, you were a loser if you didn't know what happened on Mindhunter. But I wonder whether or not it's picked up a lot of interest since it debuted almost, I guess, a year and a half ago. Why Why do you think that you are less excited about, like, does your lack of interest in season three of Bloodline or season seven of Orange, how does that compare to season two of Big Little Lies or whatever other shows you like when they come back? I think partially, partially it has to do with how it's being pitched at me. Like, I, I have to admit, there are several shows that I adore that sometimes I'll just turn on Netflix and I'll be like, wait, this is back, you know, like, it, so it's not, it's not even made into like a real event, I think. And partially it's because of the lack of structure around the viewing. And I never really know, you know, sometimes there are things like dark where I'm just like, I'm just going to keep watching these until I get to the end because I want to find out what happens. But, you know, when it's something kind of lighthearted, whether it's one day at a time or dead to me, you kind of just like, it feels like it's just out there in the ether. And especially as you go forward, you know, you get distracted by so many new titles I wonder whether or not that's something that they'd grapple with internally. Yeah, I mean, Dark is a a good example for me because it's a show that I've always wanted to watch, Mm -hmm. have not. But if if I were to be told that a new season were coming back, I might say, okay, over the next couple of weeks, I'll carve out some time. I'll catch up on what's happened and so then I'm ready for the new one. But there is no marketing like that from Netflix they're changing bit by bit. Like their their new chief marketing officer now reports into the head of programming. Mm-hmm. So it's everything is dictated by the studio. It just hasn't been the Netflix way to to market way ahead of time. I remember being in the audience for uh, kind of a, a panel for the Emmys related to the first scene of Stranger Things. And the creators of that show, the Duffer Brothers, were talking about how they were so nervous before it came out because there was no marketing yeah. out of it. They figured Netflix just didn't care. But then they realized that when it hit and people liked it, then Netflix put everything it had behind it and it blew up into a sensation. Well, and there is a sort of, there is a Netflix show phenomenon that happens. It happened with Stranger Things in the biggest way. that is in Marie Kondo. Yeah, Marie Kondo. Uh, to some extent, the first season of Dark, although I think it was a little niche. But like when Stranger Things came out, I remember it being like dropped. And then a couple of people watched it, and it was a real, like, old-school word of mouth, like, I, you should really check this out. This is really cool. And then it just caught on. And it was, like, something about, like, 10 days to two weeks after it had come out, I remember it just being, like, everybody was talking about Barb, and everybody was talking about the, the music, and whether it was, like, too retro or whether it was, you know, it was everything about it seemed like it owned a summer in a way that even this third season, which I'm sure was b- as big as anything they've ever done— felt like it came and went in like eight days after after it dropped. Yeah, I don't know that people will be talking about the new season of Stranger Things in a couple of weeks. And even the, the discussion around this season felt less mm-hmm. than that first one. Like I haven't, maybe this is just anecdotal and it doesn't matter, but it's not like my friends are coming up to me wanting to talk about the new season of Stranger Things. Yeah. They're more of them want to talk about Big Little Lies. Now the audience for Big Little Lies is much smaller. Yeah. But it just doesn't feel like a zeitgeisty show. So I want to talk a little bit about what happens when Apple, Disney, HBO Max, and Comcast are around. How does that, in your mind, even off the top of your head, how does Netflix demonstrably different when those things are around? First Uh, of all, I mean, like the library, I would imagine, is, is impacted. 
That is a, a story that I feel has been pretty grossly overplayed. Okay. A lot of things have already happened. Disney has already said that it was not going to renew its deal for movies. Those movies are going off. I forget if it's already happened or if it's happening. In I the think next the six Marvel months. movies are still there a, for a, a while. A few of them are yeah. still there. But those movies actually come back in like five, six years because of a quirk of that deal. Oh, wow. Of the 10 most popular licensed shows on Netflix, two of them we know are going to leave, which are The Office Pop and Friends. Friends. Yeah. Friends will leave at the end of this year. The Office doesn't even leave until the end of 2020. Mm -hmm. So, yes, those big media companies are pulling their shows off Netflix. It's slow and it's tedious because they made deals that gave Netflix rights for a very long time. Shows that are still on the air, those don't leave Netflix until many years after they leave the air. Hmm. So all those popular CW shows, those are going to be on Netflix till like 2025. Riverdale, et cetera. Yeah, those okay. are going to be there forever. Uh, a lot of the, the Shonda shows that are still on ABC, those don't leave Netflix until at least a couple of years after they wow. leave. So we have, like, Grey's Anatomy. ABC has to cancel that show if Disney ever wants Grey's off of Netflix. So that doesn't change a whole lot, a little bit. What I do think changes is there's just more competition for time and energy and attention. Mm -hmm. And Netflix, which has gotten away with really being the place you go for streaming TV on the internet all of a sudden is not because there are so many other options. Now, we've had Hulu. We've had Amazon. You can obviously stream HBO or Showtime. But I would expect that you will see Disney just market the hell out of Disney Plus and put all these resources behind it. And how Netflix contends with that remains to be seen. Right. If The Mandalorian winds up being bigger than almost anything Netflix has ever done, what happens to Netflix, basically? Right. Do they? Because Netflix will say when there's an outage on YouTube, for example, their usage will go up because mm -hmm. that's their closest competition online. What happens when... You know, when The Mandalorian is a big hit. Or is the fact that Game of Thrones was in this most recent quarter one of the reasons why Netflix didn't have a huge quarter? Sure. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Do you think that there is ever going to be what what does a slowdown for Netflix look like? Or is it a bubble and it either it's either inflating and inflating or popping? Like if would, would there be a point where they're saying, you know what? We spent $150 million on Martin Scorsese movie. We we won some stuff for Roma. It's been fun, but this is like the margins are just off for us here because we're not getting repeat viewings of Roma and the Irishman over the years. They are definitely past the point of bubble popping and dramatic reversal. They make too much they have too many customers, make too much money, uh, and are too it's their whole business. So it's okay. not like we're gonna see them like I could see Amazon and Apple just say we're out like we have all these other things we make money from we don't need hollywood we're done that's not possible for netflix what could happen is if what happened this quarter repeats if all of a sudden instead of adding you know a 28 million customers a year it starts to add 20 or mm -hmm. 15 then they probably have to spend less money on programming they have to be more rational about what they're doing they can't just flood the zone with new shows they have to act like a studio has historically acted which is like let's pick the ones that we really believe in and develop <laughs> right. instead of just tossing full season orders at everything yes uh, that's what i would expect if there's some problems and cuz the thing is their stock price would fall and that's what would then make them have to adjust because they wouldn't be able to borrow money as easily. You know, they'd have to really make report a poor money into development. Yeah, they, yeah. They'd have to show that they would enter what is kind of considered a more mature phase of a company where it's no longer just about growth, but it's about profit. I feel like I've, you know, in the last couple of days had a bunch of these kinds of conversations and the, the place that I feel like goes largely unremarked upon, strangely, is Apple. I think that they've, it's been, despite the, reveal of, you know, a little bit about the interface, a couple of the shows, some stills, maybe a trailer or whatever. We haven't really gotten too far into it. What are you kind of hearing? And, and if you, you know, and what are you sort of feeling about the Apple service? Apple service will debut sometime this fall. Mm -hmm. They are taking a completely different approach from Netflix. Netflix is spray and pray. Let's make a lot of really good shows. Some of that works. You have Stranger Things, you have Narcos, and then some of it is like a show Chambers that came out in April and nobody even heard of it and then it disappeared. Yeah. Apple is going to make a handful of very expensive shows with people everybody's heard of and use that as sort of a sprinkle on top of an app that it already has. Because Apple still is stuck on this idea that the TV the process of finding what to watch online is, is too difficult, which yeah. they're probably right about. Yeah, and they they're, want, they're about to be really right. They want yeah. to condense everything into their app, which is also called TV, which is sort of confusing. <laughs> um, 
And the problem is, is that none of the big streaming services actually want to play along with it. Sure. So Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, they're like, no, we want people to go to our app. We don't want them to go to yours. But it does mean you pay for HBO, you pay for Showtime, you pay for all these other things. You can watch those shows within the TV app. Right. And then Apple will kind of sprinkle on their fancy originals as another reason to use it. What's not clear Will you have to pay extra? I think that if you don't pay for any other Apple services, you will have to pay some monthly fee. To watch the the Reese Witherspoon, Jennifer Aniston show. Yeah, the morning show. Uh, If you do pay for something, they haven't said this, but my sense is you'll you'll get grandfathered in. Like if you pay for Apple Music and the Apple News app, I have a really hard time believing you're also going to have to pay for Apple Video. It just doesn't make any sense. What's their, what's in it for them? What's it like? What's I mean? Is it just to be in business with Tom Hanks or Reese Witherspoon or or Damien Chazelle, or is there, is it because they have a bunch of cash burning a hole in their pocket and there are worse ways to spend it? I mean, what, what do you think is in it for Apple? There are two forces at work. I would say one is you have the Apple Hollywood people who have wanted to do this for a while. They see Netflix having all this success, Amazon having all the fun. They say, why not us? Then you have Tim Cook, CEO, looking across the landscape. The sale of iPhones have slowed, you know, they're Mm -hmm. still making, they're still one of the most successful companies in the world, but there's only so much they can squeeze out of that product. There are only so many new people who need phones, only so much people are willing to spend. And as the prices of iPhones get higher and higher, people try to take longer between buying new ones. So Apple's strategy the past couple of years has been to signal that, you know, on top of being a devices company, we're going to be a services company, which means they're selling you Apple Music, they're selling you news, they're selling you video, they're selling you all these other things that both further tether you to their device, the one that I have in my pocket, and maybe makes a little extra money on top of it. And if it doesn't, it doesn't really matter to a company with $300 billion in cash just sitting in Ireland. Sure, right. And then I guess crucially also they get into um, wallet and stuff like that where all of these things are linked by a payment service that they're sort of operating. Yeah, we've got all these tech companies with too much money, too much power. They don't really know what to do with it. And so they're going into all sorts of new areas because they can. Do you think that we're in a horse race and that there could only be a limited amount of winners at the end? Because there was a, obviously it got kicked around a little bit. I'm not sure if it was ever something that was serious, but that Apple should buy Netflix right? or that Netflix should acquire someone else's library or get into the acquisitions business. Do you think that we're going to have a couple of years of there being five or six streaming services and then a shrinking down to maybe two or three? I... The market can support more than two or three because if you think about how many of the small niche ones you have for horror or Shutter for whatever like it is, yeah, right. they all survive. Of the big ones, I give everybody at least a few years playing. Disney's not going anywhere. Netflix is not going anywhere. Apple and Amazon are question marks. AT&T, it's hard to see going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And Comcast... I, I get really mixed signals out of that company, so I'm not sure what to expect. I'd assume that all six are in it three years from now. Five years from now, I would guess that at least one of them is no longer in it. Hmm. A lot of the, but a, and you mentioned, you know, acquisitions. A lot of the big stuff's already happened. AT&T bought Time Warner. Mm-hmm. Disney bought Fox. Apple could buy something, but that would, you know, Apple buying Netflix would be the biggest deal in Apple history by a factor of 40 or 50. Right. That feels unlikely. Right. Um, also, given the current regulatory scrutiny of the big tech companies, I have a hard time seeing any of them pursuing a huge acquisition. Like Apple spent two years fighting to digest Shazam, which was a $400 million right. acquisition that nobody understood in the first place. So the idea that they're then going to go buy the biggest online TV network in the world still seems far-fetched. Let's talk about, like, for a second about the little guy. Right now, I was talking about this with, with Bill. I think... For people my age, maybe your age, a lot of people are still, they have cable and plus Netflix and maybe cable plus Netflix plus Amazon or something like that. But they're carrying a lot of per month content cost. And the introduction of these services may introduce like a, a real choice for these, for, for the average consumer between do I finally fully cut the cord even though I don't get to watch like Lakers games perfectly live the way I want to or do one of these services find out that like there's only so much appetite for this stuff? In term, as in, do the smaller services go away? Yeah, or? I'm kind of curious. Just like, do you think that we're going to see most people out there have subscriptions to four or five uh, services and not cable, 
Or do you think it'll be cable and two services and three that they don't have? And they're just like, I just don't watch The Office. I don't have that service. I think it depends on how much experimentation there is with sports on the internet. Because okay. like, I still pay for a, a kind of an a la carte service from Spectrum. It's not so full cable, yeah. but it, it gets me enough. It means I get live sports, I get the basic cable channels, and I'm sort of covered. I, I will have a hard time. Do you time. then pay for HBO? I pay for HBO. I pay HBO, Showtime, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon. I'm, God, yeah. I, I have I'm, to do the full bore. Um, the you and I are both pot committed. <laughs> we're, we can't be saved. <laughs> so we're probably not the best test cases here. But I will not get rid of live TV as long as there's sports. And I think that's going to keep going. Whether that means I buy the YouTube TV or uh-huh. Hulu or Spectrum or whatever yeah. it is, most sports fans are going to keep buying some kind of live service. How many things they add on? You know, pro- yeah, probably two or three. All the research differs. Some say two or three. Some say five or six. A lot of the big companies look at it more in terms of dollar mm-hmm. spend. So most people are probably going to keep spending about $100 a month on this. And so if they're spending $40 on cable, that probably gives them space for three to four services, depending on how much it costs. Sure. The ones that I imagine having a hard time are those that are going for the masses but can't sustain that level of production. Or, in, or in, yeah, investment, cons, you know, consumer interest. That's where you run into trouble. If, if whatever AT&T does with HBO Max, if they can't grow that HBO subscriber base significantly, then they have a real problem because they're planning to double the amount of shows they're making. If they don't double their customer base or triple their customer base, they're in trouble. Man, it's going to be really fascinating to watch this unfold over the next couple of months. I hope you can come back on the show at some point. It was really nice having you on. Lucas Shaw, you can read him uh, on Bloomberg News. He's one of the sort of brightest voices writing about the streaming wars right now. Lucas, thanks so much for coming on The Watch, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Riley McAtee is joining me right now. I wanted to talk to Riley about Survivor because we we heard about some rule changes coming for the 40th season, the all-winner season. There's going to be a 39th season, which uh-huh. still seems like it's like a satire or something. It's got involves like giant Easter Island statues yes. of Boston Rob and Sandra and you get to go to them to, for tutelage but they're not playing so that's that's coming soon yes right that's the fall that's the fall yeah and that one wraps up at Christmas and then they have another one shortly after spring. that in the spring the one in the spring is the 40th season yep all winners 20 we, years on the air and we've had some what are some of the names of the people like some of the past champs who are going to be on it so it's going to have Rob and Sandra it's going to have People who haven't returned in like a really long time, like Amber or like Yule, who only played one season, okay. it's going to have legends like Parvati. It has a bunch of recent winners, people like Michelle and Ben and Adam and Sarah and Wendell. And then it's got like fun characters like Tony and uh, like Tyson. It's actually like a really, really great cast. So the cast like, excites you. There's like, oh, it's like, oh, I wish they could have gotten like this person or that person, like one or two. But as far as like all winners cast go. Are they bringing Joe rocks. back for another another early exit? <laughs> uh, I don't, I no, he's not on here. Okay, so this gets announced. We've known about the winter season coming for a while. There's general excitement. But then they announced that they were going to add a couple of wrinkles to this season. And that's where Riley got pissed. So Riley wrote a piece for The Ringer about this. Yeah, you're shaking your head like yeah. I'm not representing you properly, but I think no, you were annoyed, yeah, yeah. right? No, I, yes, yeah. I so, mean, I, I don't know. I feel like it's been like a long simmering thing for me, but it's just, I don't know, man. They just keep tweaking the formula, and it's like the basic formula is so good. You're a traditionalist. Yeah, I know, I know. You're, yeah. I'm you're, like a crotchety old man. No, you're a survival. About it. You, you know, you, you believe in the Constitution as, as originally interpreted, you know? Correct. Yeah. So <laughs> what are the wrinkles that they're throwing in this season? Yeah, I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm like Antonin Scalia <laughs> right. or whatever, <laughs> of, Scalia of Survivor. Survivor. <laughs> um, so they're doing, they... So last season, they did this Edge of Extinction twist that we talked about uh, a few months ago Mm -hmm. on this podcast where they had, once you were voted out, a contestant could choose to go to Extinction Island, which was basically this desolate island that had no real resources and was a real pain to live on. But you could stay there and wait it out long enough and then eventually compete in a challenge to earn your spot back into the game. Mm -hmm. And they had two different instances where you could win your way back in. It was like right at the merge and then at final five. And the guy who was voted out on day eight, uh, Chris, 
ended up winning the challenge to get back in at final five. So way later. And then he ended up winning the entire season right. after only having played for, it was like 13 days or something. It was right. like less than two weeks of actual main game time. And the vast majority of his time, like four weeks spent uh, sitting on Extinction And, and even his eventual, spoiler alert, his eventual victory felt not quite asterisky, but very like it, he got in and not through a loophole, but it was a fire challenge. Like there was not, it's yes. not a traditional survivor build alliances, do, you know, backstabbing and then win at the end. He came in and he made like one sort of alliance with Devons, with his idol thing that he had that they have to split for a vote and then had to like bring it back. And then, yeah, he like made, he won immunity and like made a big move, like did the fire challenge thing and sort of impressed the jury, the same people that he'd been sitting on an island with for four weeks yes. and was able to win. It's the most bizarre win in the entire show. So you've got, I think it's the most frustrating win, but it's definitely the most bizarre Were you entertained? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like the finale episode was entertaining, but as, as a whole, I was like, that's not, fair. this is not, well, it's just also just not Survivor. It was just a different show than the one that I've been watching for so many years. Okay. Now they're adding another wrinkle to season 40. Explain that one. Well, okay. So in addition to bringing back Extinction Island for season 40, and this is all reported, I guess none of this is really official, but mm-hmm. we, we know that the leaks are pretty reliable. They are... Uh, giving the players money, which they've never done before. So they the players can use this money to buy apparently like rewards and different items and potentially even advantages in the game. And they're going to be able to potentially pool their money to to buy things that they share together. Mm-hmm. And they'll and also will their money to people when they are voted out. Will right? their money when they're voted out. Yeah. I, I think that the, when they're voted out, it's been reported that they have to will their money and whatever they bought with the money two players that are still in the game, adding like a big wrinkle of, you know, I guess you don't want to backstab somebody and leave them super bitter, not only for the jury, but also for the stuff that they might give you when they're voted out. For sure. But then it's not clear to me. So I guess you don't take your money to the Extinction Island that will still exist because if Extinction Island exists, they are never really out of the game. Right. Although the the, the execution of Extinction Island last season... After a while, it would, that was actually one of the reasons why Chris was so surprising is that for a while with Extinction Island, it almost seemed like they didn't quite know what to do with it or that they, because they, they spent a lot of time and a lot of footage there. Yeah. I think almost at the expense of developing relationships with the people who are still playing the game. Like, because like a third of every episode would be spent watching, um, who was the woman who was there every day? Reem. Reem. Well, re- yeah, they'd always give Reem, like, one quip at the end. She was voted off first and, and you know, to her credit, stayed through the entire yes. thing, but then uh, every time somebody <laughs> then would come to Extinction Island, she'd be like, welcome to hell! You know? <laughs> yeah, uh, buckle up. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, and that came at the expense of there would be, like, eight people left in the game, and I was like, wait, who's this person? Yes. You know, which is a pretty weird sensation because usually by that point in a Survivor season, you have your favorites, you have the people yeah. you don't like, you have people you know have no chance. So, well, yeah, and in addition, because they had like four returnees last season and those people just demand a little bit more screen time because we're already familiar with them. And then they had Devons who kind of dominated the season plus the Extinction Island thing. It, it felt like last season was super hectic. Yeah, Devons found like an incredible amount of idols, essentially ran the game from like a bunch of different angles yep. and then l- loses because a guy comes back and he has to make fire. Yeah, which didn't seem right. Well, Devons had also, he was the one who had been voted off previously <laughs> and then won That's his true. way back I in. I guess if Devons so had I was, Yeah, if Devons had never been voted off in the first place, I would have been like, wow, a guy who just really, you know, ran the show for the whole season went out with the fire making challenge, except for I was like, uh, you know what? Devons already got voted out once. So, so there was no <laughs> possible good winner for Survivor. All right. So like what you get out of your article that's on The Ringer is this idea that Survivor, and you break it down pretty easily. You're like, here's what Survivor is. Right. The variations on the theme, you, do you have like a sense of how much experimentation you are comfortable with? Because you basically break it down to three things, right? Uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, the the whole thing is that you want to control the game enough so that you're not getting voted out and preferably the people that you want to get voted out are getting voted. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to be so obvious in that control that you then become a threat and get voted out yourself. Right. And you also don't want that control to be so subtle that by the time you get to the end, if you make it there, the jury just thinks that you didn't do anything, that you rode coattails. So you're sort of doing this balancing act where you want to be clear that you're doing stuff in the game 
um, but not so much that you become a target. Mm -hmm. And that creates a ton of tension, especially with the fact that once you're voted out, you're out. It's over and done, except for this last season with Extinction Island, where you could get voted out and then come back. Right, right. And so... What do you think, it, I, to me, the, the introduction of this stuff with winners. Now, you, you said before we started recording that you would have liked to have seen this experimentation happening with newbies. But with sure. winners, I actually kind of feel like this is really interesting, giving them a new tool in the toolbox kind of thing. I'm Well, so I'm all the way out on Extinction Island. Like, newbies are returning. Returnees, yeah. just, just no thanks. Uh, the money thing is really weird and interesting and I think is kind of a fun wrinkle. But, yeah, I... I I'd be more interested in it in a newbie season, which you kind of, if you're CBS, you're Survivor, you have to sell anyways. Um, but the winner's season just sells itself. So mm -hmm. I don't, uh, you know, why you don't have it? to add twists upon twists to sell the most stacked cast that you've ever had in 20 years of doing this show. Just do the normal formula and it'll already be awesome. Do you think that this is a gambit from Survivor to remain relevant? Uh, maybe, you know, my favorite theory that somebody tweeted at me was that, uh, because, so there are 37 winners now, I guess, mm -hmm. at the end of 30, season 38, because Sandra has won twice, Right. that these people had so much leverage in coming back that they said, you got, you know, some of them probably were like, I don't want to come back and starve. So do something that I can like get some food or, or some rewards or whatever. And that they might have actually done that. And maybe they did a, you know, if I'm going to come back, I need to be on the whole season. So you need to introduce some sort of like island thing that I can sit on, hence Edge of Extinction or whatever, which is totally like not that That's theory. That theory is not yeah. founded in right. anything totally tinfoily, but I was, you know, I think it's pretty compelling. Because <laughs> I, very I, interesting. Obviously, I made this passing joke to you and you disagree with it, but I was like, Survivor is like Jeopardy to me. Like, it could just keep going on forever. Why do you think it, it isn't? Well, it could go on forever, but Jeopardy never changed the formula. Je the reason Jeopardy is great is because it's the same thing. It's yeah, just, but didn't you know, they introduce, like, today it's all, like, teenagers, and today it's like... Oh, yeah, I mean, whatever. They'll do, like, their tournaments or whatever, but the core show, Jeopardy, is just you answer trivia, and you're fast on the buzzer, and that's how you win. Yeah, but maybe Survivor they should change Jeopardy because that Bobby Fischer dude just, like, ran the table on everybody. Right? That was great. <laughs> That's exactly why they shouldn't change it. Because so when just, he does that, would you, you be, be happy like, watching Survivor every year if it was just like someone's figured out exactly how to play within the rules of Survivor and dominates? Hell yeah. Yeah. Well, also because the game itself has changed over time, even without different rule changes. Yes. Like people found different ways of using idols. Like when the first players started to figure out, which, oh, so I guess the hidden immunity idol is a rule change that you know, didn't come about until I think like season 11 or something. That's the best rule change. Okay. That one they should keep forever. But, you know, people didn't realize at first that you could show somebody an idol and then use that to gain their trust and, and you know, create an alliance that way. So the game kind of will evolve even without rule changes, yeah. which is already interesting. But, you know, the, the thing that has always separated the best seasons from the kind of run-of-the-mill seasons is the characters and the cast, not yeah. the twists. No one has been like, this twist was just so great that it elevated the game to a new level. I think that there's a degree to which I think that there's been a little bit too much self-awareness on Survivor, like where you have characters, you have people who yeah. obviously are like essentially Survivor scholars and it yes. becomes five-degree chess all the time. So I like the idea of them giving people a, little, a few other obstacles or a few other things to think about rather than being like, I've run an algorithm that tells me like I make my move in episode seven and I do this when there's this many people yeah. left and that this is how I get to the final three and I have to do a blindside on this day. I mean, yes. we're getting kind of money ballish yeah. on, on Survivor as it is. They uh, they cast a lot of super fans and then a lot of people who like, they build themselves as super sure. fans. They are always like going to these confessionals and be like, as a Survivor super fan, I know that There's sometimes immunity idols are hidden under like trees or whatever. There's nothing There's worse like, than the right, guy who's like, I have watched every episode of Survivor. I am a super fan. Yes. And then he gets like nuked on the second <laughs> that, That's great. Yeah, that stuff is great. It's been my lifelong dream to arrive at this island. I'm in perfect shape. I will not lose. And then it's just like, get this guy And then they here. immediately make like a rookie mistake, which is that they're just bossing everyone around in camp. Right. And they, they get voted out. It's all like, the rice really, on the fire. You, yeah. you watch every episode and didn't realize that the asshole always gets voted out early. Come I just on. think that everything goes out the window for how hangry people are. Like, I, yeah. just, I just think that that's like an under 
appreciated idea is just like, yeah. can you handle being hungry all the time? I super agree. Whenever people make mistakes, especially late and ones that are obvious, I'm always chalking it up to, you know what? If I had lost 30 pounds after being outside yeah. all the time for 20 some days, I'd make a bunch of mistakes And hadn't too. had a good night's sleep in a month. I'd Sleeping probably on like, bamboo? be like crying over like a shell anyway. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it sounds like a terrible, miserable time and they never focus on that anymore, but I think it totally affects everything Yeah, they've everything deviated a little bit away from like, I have tons of mosquito bites and like foot yeah. rot. Yeah, Which makes sense. We've seen it all Yeah, I got times. that. I got enough foot rot in my life from, from the show. <laughs> all right, well, Riley will obviously be coming on the watch, I hope, a lot when the show finally, when 39 and especially when 40, we're all still here. Yeah. If we haven't been wiped off the face of the earth by the Top Gun trailer, we will yeah. all still be here watching Survivor. Riley, come on and talk to me about it. Thanks so much for stopping by, man. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>